the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Week is brought to you by our fine group of underwriters, companies like Extron Electronics. This is AV Week, episode 205, recorded Friday, July 24th, 2015. Tay-Tay is punk. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. And welcome to another edition of AV Week. I am your host, George Tucker. Thank you for joining us for your source for news and information. It's been a little hectic today, so we're going to go slow just to bring it all back down to a regular rhythm. Joining me today to discuss a number of some interesting issues and maybe even some technical foibles we were through is the one and only Mr. Adrian Boyd. How are you, sir? I'm well. You're well. You sound well. You look fabulous. Well, thank you. Okay. Also joining us is Joshua Stackhouse. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Mr. Tucker. All right. Glad to have you on. We haven't talked since Infocom, so... Yeah. Good to see you. And last but not least is Joe Whitaker. He is from CDA, the Board of Directors. Good to have you, sir. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you guys for having me on today. All right. And a fabulous poster you've got going on back there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Point it out. It's in Dallas. It's coming up soon, people. All right. So let's get to the news. One of the first ones is from our friends at Innovate Magazine. They're talking about a hybrid environment for control. And I'll share this with everybody here. Here we go. So what is this? This is an open sourced control, sort of like a plug and play, I guess you could say, for for stuff. Um, The premise is that you take this open source program, point it at an object, and it automatically has the controls for you. So no more digging around, no more having to get uh, specific controllers. It just knows. Adrian, I'm going to start with you on this. Is this just a fad, or do you think this is something that can really change stuff? Well, it's really interesting. It's based out of some research that MIT has been doing the last couple years. And you download the app, and this is not a, a... it does not work out of the box right away. There's a few steps that you have to do, um, and a lot of it's based around uh, the Andrino, uh, you know, uh, software and hardware platform. So you, one of the first things you have to do is you have to um, create the environment because it's going to look for um, the information in order to make this work. Is this going to be kind of something newer in the future? I think this is a lot of um, where we're heading with technology, where devices are going to be, you know, as part of this, uh, that new coin phrase, what is it, the Internet of Things, everything is going to be talking with everything else and sharing information, and and it's the Minority Report all over again. Well, Joe, let me bring this to you, because when we watch this video, part of it's talking about interconnecting devices right from the touchscreen. That's a big change, and we've been debating, you know, I guess tactile and haptic versus the you know, frictionless screen, but this brings a whole new dimension to what we're doing. And it might even for the industry, though, mean less or more gear. It it could very well mean less or more. I mean, this is just, 
uh, what Adrian said. This is, you know, an attempt at IoT Realized. This is Nest coming to us and talking to us about the thoughtful home. This is a whole different approach. However, we've seen sporadic pieces of this in the past. We've seen Savant come out with an interface where you literally see your living room and you touch a light that's on your touchpad and that light comes on. It, it, it's another sense of another way of doing things. The curiosity for me is, though, is this is a wider acceptance. It's just like a thread or something, you know, a, a, a thing of that nature is manufacturers are going to have to adopt the platform to survive and to be able to come into this. When I look at it, the video is great. I point at something in my house. I want to control that light or this TV, and I just point at it. It recognizes it. It interlinks. And I should be off to the races. Now, in theory, we know that that is not the case. However, ideals like this are where IoT is going within the home, and that should eventually translate into the commercial space. While we have a bunch of great guys doing great things, I just hope to see things like this actually come to fruition because they're fun, they're neat, and they're engaging. Hmm. Well, speaking of neat, Josh, let's talk about how close this looks to sort of VR technology. Do you think this is something where maybe VR in the home could really be present soon? Um, you mean you mean AR, uh, augmented reality? Oh, augmented reality. I'm thinking virtual reality, or <laughs> augmented reality. Yeah, it's like yeah. back in the day where you had the big helmet on your face and you were shooting the pterodactyl at the mall. Yeah, well, still Oculus, uh, right? It's still yeah. a big box. It's a <laughs> no. cardboard box with a cell phone inside it. <laughs> I um I think that uh, this is definitely. Um, Augmented reality in in a consumer friendly form. Um, the the thing that's really important to recognize here is that they said in the article that the platform uses web standards and no proprietary protocols, and that all the data regarding the interface and its connections are stored within the object itself. So what you have essentially is a platform that's freely available by. Uh, any means, when you look at the history of music, for example, when the MP3 container came along, that's when people started doing digital music because they had a convenient data container. The standard was there, and everybody could get on board with that same standard. And uh, when HTML came along, you know, HTML was a standard. So when you've got a platform like this that is based on web standards where the data resides not on a server but within the object itself, you start to look at the power of, uh, of data format and, and – uh, it has a lot of applications. I mean, for example, uh, a lighting technician for a live, I mean, the live sound and live staging is your world, Mr. Tucker, but uh, imagine what it could do for a lighting tech or a sound technician where, you know, instead of having to have a big board, you could have an iPad or maybe some future version of an iPad that's bigger than an iPad, but a control platform that rather than just, you know, physically wiring everything, you, you know, change things on the fly, like, lighting scenes that are pre-programmed by just aiming a device at the at the light itself that you want to control and relinking it. Mm. You know, Joe, let me let me pose something to you about this. Okay. One of us mentioned that this is from MIT, right? And the same thing happened with those, well, I'm going to call them the skunk works of NYU, the multi-touch screen. Uh, there was a <laughs> TED talk about it, right, in the or late 1990s, and, yes. and eventually when it was came to be a real company, who bought them? 
Microsoft. Correct. Now it's fu it's funny you actually bring that up because this reminds me a lot of that. Um, I, I I don't remember if that was 2003 or 2004. Um, I was actually at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, when Microsoft launched their first Surface table, and we saw where that came from. And it was very impressive. It is very unique. Um, but it has taken up to now before the Surface became a sellable and really operable and widely accepted platform. This, however, has a magical component to it. It is using years upon years of industry standards for web. For web, they're using HTML. They're using things that a lot of us uh, in all of our industries actually know about. It, it, it is such a different thought compared to control systems and control companies as a platform as a whole. I don't have one guy that does C++ and another guy that does Lua programming and another guy that does this. And, oh, by the way, what happened to Hexadecimal? It doesn't matter anymore. Now I have a single platform, easily adoptable, that you could seriously take an entire control platform just for just about any device, and because it is HTML, it could sit on a very tiny 8-gig SD card if it wanted mm. to. I, I mean, you're talking about a control platform that can really do anything. And coming from MIT, that is great, but you hit the nail on the head. Surface was bought by Microsoft matured and it does well who is going to buy and take this technology will it be Apple will it be Google it will be somebody big and influential that has been looking for an opportunity to saturate and jump into this market could be the, the uh, diving board for Brillo, for Google <laughs> exactly. Brillo. yeah you know uh, you, you make something up though there are you you bring up a good point um, you said that it's on a small thing and I'm struck by the fact that we're only two days out from the return of Apollo 11 nearly what 40 years ago um, so 40 odd years ago, and it was running on computers that were probably less powerful than the one you just described, and we're sort of going back towards it. It's a very interesting thing. We've reached the pinnacle with the iPhone, in terms pinnacle, and now we're sort of coming back to this sort of very small memory usage and, and this little mesh idealism, which this, I think, is going to use. Exactly. Yeah. Adrian, I want to throw something at you about this, though. This brings back a whole debate on how much we need interfaces. About two or three shows ago, we had a, a conversation of haptic and sort of ultrasonic form, deformed surfaces being needed for uh, feedback. And some of the, the panelists weren't so sure that you really needed that feedback. In a case like this and in general, what are your thoughts on that? Do we need that real tactile feedback or, or is it just some of the old guys like me who still sort of lust for the weighted knob? Well, you know, both both you and I, you know, like weighted knobs and um, feedback in terms of control systems uh, helps individuals relate to the world around you. Uh, when we, you know, let, let's let's just kind of turn this a little bit. Um, if you know you have a disability, if you're blind or you're mm -hmm. hard of hearing, um, feedback is the only way that you know if something is working, if it's aud if it's audible or if it's visual. Um, uh, that's a real benefit to you. And, and, you know, we still require feedback of some sort. I mean, how satisfying is it to, to pick up a pen and click that, the top of the pen and hear that click? Hmm. You know, you know the pen is working. Um, I don't think uh, feedback is going to go away. It may become more diverse. It may become more integrated 
with our devices and how we're operating. Uh, I mean, uh, we look at all of our cell phones. What's the what's the two biggest pieces of feedback that we get in a cell phone? It's vibration and it's audio. You know, the video is not a big deal because most of the time, where is our phone? It's in our pocket. You know, how do you know when someone's calling you? It vibrates, right? Yeah. So. I don't think feedback's ever going to go away. It may just change as we, you know, further start integrating a lot of these devices, um, and as other products start to get more, um, I would say, intelligent connected. Hmm. Well, Mr. Josh, Tucker. Yeah, I was going to say I'm going to throw it to you, our uh, sort of millennial on the crew here today. Your thoughts? Are we just uh, reminiscing about old things that don't need to be anymore, or what is your take? No, I actually. Um... I think it's it's more of a paradigm shift, really, uh, into what feedback means. Uh, Your you know tactile is only one sense, uh, as Mr. Boyd points out. Uh, you've got uh, audio feedback. You've got the the vibration from a cell phone, um, but feedback can be many things. And I think we just had this conversation in the last couple of weeks on AV Week. But mm -hmm. in the last couple of weeks, there was a, there was something about zero UI. Yeah, yep, there was that one as well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just kind of like a reoccurring theme, but uh, I thought that this reminds me of that in that capacity that, you know, what you define a an interface as kind of becomes the fundamental question because how you define the interface will then define um, what you might use for feedback, so. Right. Uh, All right, well, let's move on to some more business-oriented stuff at the moment. Uh Samsung and Apple. Yeah, I'm going to drag out this trope for a little bit, but it's important. There are, this is an article about Samsung having to pay Apple for patent infringements, and they're mainly minor things. And this is really about a bunch of companies, Facebook, Google, Dell, eBay, and a number of others joining with Samsung as a friend of court brief saying, we think you've overstepped your bounds. I'm going to start with you, Joe, from the business perspective. Is this kind of ruling damaging to innovation and to our industry, or is it just the right thing to do? Now, now it, it can be very damaging, and this this is an article. This is actually something that I've kept track of for for quite a while. In that, you know, I've personally been involved in in the patent process and, and device design and these things where you're protecting your your intellectual property, but at the same time, things can be protected to the point they stunt and they kill innovation. Uh, it, it it happens. It's happened across the industry multiple times. Apple, Savant, the list. I mean, uh, uh, Lutron. The list goes on and on and on. It, it happens. And but what ends up happening is there's curves around innovation. It creates ways to be something totally different. Now this is more of a business thing than an innovation thing. When I look at it, because when you look at the players, you look at Google and you look at uh, uh, everybody else that's involved in it. Facebook. Um, these guys have native built-in stake with Samsung. They, 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 have, they have hands in this. So it, it hurts them on the cell phone market. In the end, this could be one of those detrimental things that is going to hurt everybody because if they can take Samsung for those reasons, which you are on the point, very minuscule, very small, very wide open, and they can just go out and they can say, Everybody is in violation of the exact same components, and that's what kills innovation. Is when patent offices, you know, allow very broad and open uh, verbiage inside patents that actually destroys innovation. To that end, uh, Adrian, 
Joe makes some good points about this, that it can be both protective and a bit a bit disturbing to innovation. Uh, I, I use the example to be a little salacious. There's a recent article about how online internet interactions with adult toys are now suffering from a, uh, an internet troll, which says you can't make anything that does this because we own it. Uh, not to use that as the prime example, but are you concerned that we're going to sort of lay into a land of stasis now because of people like this? Well, this is a, this has been an ongoing problem for probably the last 20 years in terms of of how technology has progressed. Um, the U.S. has a huge problem with its patent system and its trademark system. Everybody knows it. Everybody acknowledges it. No one wants to do anything about it. And every idea, every patent that is out there, someone has at least thought of it twice, you know. And we see a lot of this now. Similar concepts, similar ideas uh, that two people have come up to the same conclusion, the same idea. They both patent it. One guy's got it first, so he gets the patent. And, and we see a lot of similarities in technology. Well, this has happened since the beginning, isn't it? Uh, we're talking well, yeah, Edison. Well, we're talking the phonograph, the car, the telegraph. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, this is nothing new, but um, a lot of these lawsuits that we're now seeing, that we've been seeing in the past with patent trolls and with major manufacturers, is is they feel that something that they've created is being infringed on, but it's 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 all, we've almost gotten to the point. I would hate to say critical mass, but We've gotten to the point where we're at with technology that um, I wouldn't say there's no new ideas, but it's a lot of similar ideas, a lot of similar thinking because we've, there's a lot of really smart people and they're all kind of on the same path. Mm -hmm. And when you get a lot of that thinking and you get a lot of that direction, you start seeing similarities in technology and then people go, well, that's stealing something I already thought of. Well, maybe, but you know, someone else thought of it too. And, and it does stifle innovation because people now have to spend a bigger product to market. Uh, there are thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on what it is, doing trademark and patent research to make sure that you're not going to get sued to um, oblivion because the product you're bringing to market is like somebody else's. And it does stifle in, in innovation a little bit. But, you know, I, I'm always struck with the thought of, not that I thought of that, but I should have thought of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why not I think of that? Yeah. Jeez. Uh, if I Josh, come up with Facebook, gee. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, let me bring this to you. Uh, Adrian makes a point about there's lots of smart people doing very similar things, trying to solve a lot of similar problems, actually. Uh, there was a meme that went around just around the time of this initial uh, litigation about swipe to unlock and showing sort of the slide bolt and saying, hey, Apple, I think somebody thought of it before you. Uh, do you think that these patents actually protect a company like Apple and we're just being silly, wanting our toys and wanting them now, Daddy? Or do you see that there is n there's no real value to them? Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the whole lawsuit itself is, is really gotten out of hand, but it, it I think... It is a soap opera. This is true. Well, it just what it boils down to is it. It feels like there's two kids on the playground, and both of them want to take the ball and go home, but neither one of them know who the ball belongs to. Um, and ultimately, it doesn't really matter. And to me, it doesn't matter because as a consumer, uh, I try to look at it as in 
whenever somebody big does something first, all the other competitors are going to go and mimic it. Everyone wants to play Me Too, Me Too. Um, Apple was the first one to come out. Wasn't the first to come out with an I, with an MP3 player, right? But Apple had a better UI. Uh, they they spent money in human computer infrastructure inf interfaces, um, and they developed the jog wheel. Then everybody wanted an MP3 player all of a sudden, and then everyone copied that. Um, the smartphone is the, is a category where Apple just happened to kind of sort of create the category, but they really didn't. They defined the standard. So let me pose a question because you brought something up that I think uh, is pertinent to this, and I'm going to put it to the round real quick. You know, you said that uh, when somebody comes up with a, a, a sellable and popular feature, everyone wants it. Well, I want to be six foot four and be really well built, but I'm not. Does that really change the dynamic when we think of it in that way? And, and let me let me start with Joe because Joe, you said that this sometimes can stifle innovation, but there is that factor, isn't there? I came up with it. It's my rounded edges. Well, okay. So, so you you are on to a very good point, and. Uh, you know, Adrian kind of kind of slightly touched on it. The, the the patent industry itself is a ridiculous shambles. In 2013, they tried to revamp it. You had the you know Americans to Invent Act. So much mess because of trying to trying to do this. However, companies like Samsung they do get the fact, and and I mean Josh hit it on the head. The little cog wheel. Everybody's going to do it. The patent office actually allows that. They say you can patent based on certain uh, advancements or changes to a specific object. The patent for Apple with the rounded edges and this, that, and the other, of course, you know, uh, Google is going to have, have a dog in the fight because guess what? They bought the company owned by the guy who designed the first uh, uh, iPod and iPhone. Uh, it, it's ridiculous. It is a vicious cycle. And, and small things like that that justify patents should not be that those claims shouldn't be valid it should be this is a really brilliant idea believe me I think an iPhone's a brilliant idea however I thought a TV is a good idea and there's a lot of people that make TVs and you don't see Westinghouse suing GE or even stuff back from RCA innovation and creation is one thing trying to make an extra dollar in a market where you're losing share is an entirely different matter and doing it through lawsuits is it's you know it's it's counter conducive to innovation. Hmm. Hey, you know I think I was going to put yeah go ahead yeah. I just wanted to kind of jump in here. The, the the one thing that none of us have touched upon so far though that's important to realize is that technology itself has this weird uh, tornado tornadic sort of cycle where things will get spun up and they go up and then they come back down and they get thrown out all over the place and. Uh, so what happens in one particular sector in technology has a massive influence on another technology sector. So, uh, for example, uh, one of the one of our topics this week in the news is the outer space uh, AV rig for 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 scientific exploration. But if, in that article, they specifically pointed out that what made the, the the package so significant was that they had all this technology and only used 24 watts of power, and that uh, 24 watts of power, and it represents, quote, a degree of miniaturization that is unprecedented in planetary exploration. Well, then to be frank, but where does that miniaturization come from? I mean, that miniaturization came from other sectors. 
right? Piezo speakers, for example, on, on, on cell phones uh, or, or the cameras that are on cell phones, the miniaturization, it goes from one industry to the other. So uh, we have an audio problems? No. Oh, okay. So, but it, it just, there's an impact on this. So when we look at this lawsuit, it has an implica implication beyond just consumer electronics because it creates a precedent since we live in a land that, ha that completely operates off of legal precedent. We operate one lawsuit based upon there's a court precedent for this happening before. And in this case, that's how every court case is usually built, except for the first time something comes up. So you got to look at it from the perspective that what would happen to technology in general if this lawsuit gets upheld in terms of the patent infringement? Hmm. Adrian, you know, Josh Stackhouse, uh, Josh Stackhouse, sorry, Josh Shrago, <laughs> too many Joshes in my life. Josh Shrago just texted me saying, hey, you know, what about Meyer? They own the trapezoidal speaker. You know, how much of a concept is that really that they should own it exclusively? Right, and, you know, it's... There's lots of trapezoidal speakers, and, and you know, <laughs> there's a lot of them out there. Um, but, it, you know, it, you start getting into, you know, uh, what is it, uh, you know, uh, copying is the biggest form of flattery, whatever that expression is. Yes, exactly. You know, we're, you know, everybody, you know, makes, uh, someone's come up with a good idea, and everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon. And, and we ha you know, you have to have a, a equal balance uh, you know, in terms of, of ownership rights for something that you've gone and created and, and, and technology and, and growth. And I think that balance is just a little bit out of whack right now. All right. Well, let's move on to the next story, uh, which actually touches on some of this. The report that Intel can't keep up with Moore's Law, and it claims we're all going to suffer. I have my doubts about this. Now, they keep, every so often, every few years, they say, well, Moore's Law has got to be modified. For those who don't know Moore's Law, and I'm shocked that there's anyone who doesn't, but hey, it basically says that the number of transistors on a chip will double at a certain rate. I think it's every two, 2.5 years at this juncture. And they're now saying that we're down to about the 10 to 7 nano, I've lost the measurement in my head, but the nano spacing. Nanometers. Nanometers. Is it nanometers or nano spacing? I forget exactly. Nanometers. Okay, I'll go with you. You're smarter than me. Um, <laughs> so the nanometers, and that we're going to be start to seeing less and less development in that. Now, there's two issues with that. Is it really going to be something that causes us problems in developing new products, or is it really not? I'm going to throw this to you to start, Joe. Are we really concerned that we've sort of stalled out on this Moore's Law acceleration, or... Absolutely not. There's there's always going to be those roadblocks as we're you know creating things that are smaller and smaller with much more power. There's always going to be that pause, and the pause is usually followed by a very fast explosion when the advancement comes. The the pause when they say we're going to have to edit Moore's law. Well, they always have to go back and edit it because they say, oh, we got to pause because we're stuck at. Intel chip X, whatever that may be, and then they make the breakthrough, and the breakthrough causes an acceleration that actually makes up for the time that just happened to get lost. And as we're moving towards what Moore's Law and other people define as a singularity, you know, going towards this processing power and small, but <laughs> you like that, don't you, Josh? I um, did the Ray Kurzweil reference. I was going uh, to bring him yeah. up on this article. So, so here, you know, you know, with it, it's funny within the walls of Cedia. I'm actually at the headquarters right now today. This conversation happens a lot. 
because we look at this as the, the spot going from that advancement is what's taking, uh, you know, AI and those type of things to that next level. And more, it's all dictated by this particular development. And I, 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 I'm telling you, even though Intel has made a slowdown, there are some other people that have already made the jump. And that is the explosion I'm talking about. So the pause, it's not going to even, it's not going to affect the measure at all. Yeah, Tucker, can I, yeah. can I jump in here? Sure. So, yeah, with what you're saying, Joe, I, actually, and since you brought up Kurzweil, um, for, for those listening that don't know about what the law of a, of a, I think it's called the law of advancing returns, um, or excel, or no, law of accelerated returns. Um, it's bigger than Moore's law. Moore's law only actually pertains to transistors specifically on a silicon-based chip, um, but uh, the 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 law of accelerated returns has a, a much broader kind of philosophical approach when you're looking at technology Correct. design. And we, they, they follow pretty well together. Yeah, they do. But the, I think the, the, the Ray Kurzweil theory kind of has a bigger impact because it, this isn't even a significant issue in my eyes. And granted, I've been using computers since like I came out of the womb practically. But uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, really... You got about four hours ago. <laughs> oh. oh. Mm. Touche. Mm. Uh, uh, <laughs> um. No, I mean, um, you look at the paradigm shifts that happen, right? Technology advances on a sort of a, a – if you look at like an XY axis like this, it moves on an S-curve that moves up and to the right. Um, you get a paradigm shift. We went from, we went from vacuum tubes, which was the, the, the fourth generation of technology paradigm, and then we went to the, the fifth generation of paradigm, which was the, the transistor, um, and, and we're – at the, the verge uh, of the new paradigm shift, where we're going to have to move into things like 3D molecular self-assembling um, computers, nanocomputers, uh, DNA computers, protein-based computers, those sorts of things, three-dimensional circuits. That's We're just approaching the end of a particular paradigm shift. It's exactly what Joe was saying. We're just on the verge of something new that we're going to start exploring, and, and, and it's just a matter of time because we're going to take the processing power that we have now, we're going to apply it to trying to build the next thing, and that's going to give us the capability to build the next thing. And when the next thing is there, all of a sudden we're going to have that accelerated explosion that Joe mentioned. All right, so let's talk about this. We're not talking now, though, just getting smaller and smaller chips and more and more transistors on that surface of a chip. Adrian, part of this, I think, and some of the articles in the New York Times about two years ago talked about this, where they said some of it's actually functional. Some of it's architectural. And I don't mean just the architecture on the chip. It's we're using more thin clients now. Uh, Joe touched on it when we were talking about you can fit this all in a very small 8-bit Arduino. Is that really part of our answer, where it's not going to stifle the innovation and all the new stuff that we look forward to, the upcycle upgrading that all of our clients do and we feed off of in many ways? Um, well, one of the things, just let me put this in perspective. When we're talking, you know, uh, 10 nanometers is about the size of a human antibody. Mm. It's really small. We're, you know, electron microscope stuff here. Um, when they talk about, you know, it being, you know, functional and, and uh, the smaller you get, you run into things with, with power leakage and, and other issues in terms of, of processing, which is one of the reasons why kind of this decentralized computer network has become pretty popular because you can spread this out, you know, over a network. Um, you know, uh, and 
you know, Intel, the, the whole gist of the article was that um, when we talk about Moore's Law, uh, Moore's Law was, it, it wasn't a scientific uh, um, law, you know, it, it was more of a following a trend right. based on what they were seeing with technological growth. It's a euphemistic and, title for what's happening. Exactly. <laughs> Looking at a trend, you know, as, as Intel progressed as a company, as things got smaller and they were able to do more with, with micro, you know, make, you know, putting transistors on silicon and, and shrinking, you know, electronics, it was just a trend he was, he was viewing, which is that trend has proved very um, accurate over time based on how we've implemented a lot of stuff in, in, in that terms. And, and you are right, when we look at a lot of these um, things like Andrino and Raspberry Pi and and even little bits, uh, which the are, you know, thing. yeah, they're, 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 you know, circuits that you build like Lego. You know, you can teach kids electronics with, with Lego type of technology. Um, it all makes perfect sense, you know. We distribute everything out. Uh, we can grow things. We can shrink things. And, and... You I mean certainly we have? You know, I mean, I mean, look at look at you know a watch these days. It's got far more power than the Apollo 11 mission is is always the uh, yeah. you know the joke that uh, that we can do. But yeah, you are right in a lot of ways uh, that yeah that this is this is we're we're at we're at that paradigm shift right mm. now, and. And one of the things they were talking about in the article was that the the next stage of Intel's new chip, you know, they're they're not kind of releasing it, but the next stage it comes right after it, um, which they're going to be releasing. You know, everyone's really excited about because it's it's a it is a big leap in terms of processing power and what it can do. Right, and there's the IBM version with with uh, another company as well that they're looking yep. at. And, all right, well, you know, let's look at something that I find actually innovative, maybe not nearly in the same uh, classroom as you mentioned, but something I came across from our friends at Sound and Vision. Original music on SoundCloud comes to Denon's Heos uh, Heos system. Now, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> you say what? I was just <laughs> I got caught up listening. I was just like, oh, yeah. So. Let's look at that. I, uh, Josh, I'm going to start with you on this one. Sure. Because this seems to take a system in which we're all used to hearing, you know, uh, we're going to have streaming, we're going to have Pandora, we're going to have Netflix, we're going to have uh, the Spotify, which is what I was trying to search for there. And this is taking a slightly different route, isn't it? It's not saying that you won't have those, but they're also trying to differentiate themselves by saying, hey, we can give you original music. They're looking for a specific demographic on this, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, SoundCloud uh, is pretty unique. Uh, one of the things that um, I can share with you from experience is the school that I went to, that I got my AV degree from, uh, was a media arts school, and they had a recording and engineering program there. And almost every single student there put all of their music and everything that they were developing as part of their profile on SoundCloud. So the way that MySpace sort of was like big for musicians, SoundCloud is now uh, very much um, along with YouTube. But SoundCloud is unique because it's all about it's all about musicians and about music. And, and they have a really interesting uh, commenting system where you can actually 
interact with your listeners by tagging a text comment to a particular time code. So as you're listening to the, as you're watching, they have a waveform display. You can actually time like two minutes and 32 seconds. Like, oh, that part was so cool, man. Uh, you can tag that and it'll actually pop up when the artist goes back and sees what people like and don't like. So you, you have some very interesting stuff going on there in terms of the music development. On the, on the home entertainment operating system, uh, the HEOS system, um, I've never actually gotten to play with it, um, but a couple of years ago when I got out of selling retail consumer electronics, uh, that was just coming, coming in. Uh, and I, 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 I'm a Marantz guy. Uh, for me, like Marantz uh, is one of my favorites, but I don't do the Denon thing. Right. Well, let, let's, let's, let's bring that in, though. I want to bring Adrian into something about what you brought up. Adrian, he's talking about how it's the new interface. Uh, really what you were describing is MySpace 2.0. Uh, but for a system like Denon to sell to this market, I'm seeing it as sort of the millennial, maybe urban. Uh, I know a lot of guys that I work listen to a lot of their salsa and bands from South America on it. This is really sort of trying to push that type of distributed audio into a market that we have yet to really achieve any solid traction in. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, what's interesting about SoundCloud is is it it's it's a it's kind of like a, a democratic method for musicians to kind of um, enjoy their music and share it with others. So, you know, it, it's like Spotify on steroids. Um, you know, you create an account, you can log in, you upload the music you create. Um, a lot of the music there, um, I mean, there's even, you know, um, uh, record label artists, they'll, they'll put, you know, weird mixes and, and remixes of their songs, you know, hey, what do you think of this? Uh, Guys in the hip hop and rap community will put their beats up there, and everybody can can say, "Hey, that's cool. That's right. That's sick. I liked how you did that." A lot of the musicians in the EDM world, uh, you know, put their their stuff up there, and, and so making this available on a on a on a system that's removed from a computer, you know, so you you log into your account, and you can get your favorite artist that you've already picked on SoundCloud. You know, now you can listen throughout the house without having to use your phone or, or um, you know, your computer. It's just, it's just another step of, of, of embedding that, you know, content that's online and bringing it closer to other devices. Joe, this is actually pretty genius. This is actually looking at a whole new marketplace and a whole new way of where we've already lost the physical medium. Now we're losing the registered label and the official music. <laughs> it's, well, it, it's all coming down. It, it, it's, it's funny the, the, the way it works because for, for Denon, this is a very brilliant play. Uh, I'm in a world where the, you know, the competitive space in wireless music is starting to get a little, it's starting to get bigger. You know, Denon, Sonos, and everybody's picking what they think is going to be what makes their platform better. Um, Sonos did high res Deezer, brilliant for them. They could do that, but Denon took an entirely different and genius approach in a time when musical media, most of the stuff that is fed to people who sit in front of the TV, comes from American Idol and The Voice. These are unheard of, unrecorded artists, and they're everywhere, and they're creative, and they're new because people are tired of hearing Taylor Swift. This is where you know this is it's, for yourself. It's, 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 it's hey, innovation. Don't you mess with Tay Tay, man. Hey, man. With Tay -Tay. It's innovation with music with a brand that 
is trying to do something innovative. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I use SoundCloud. I, I love it. I find stuff that, that matches, you know, moods and, and things that I, I'm not going to hear my car on the radio I haven't heard before. I'm able to discover new music again, which has, you know, it, that's kind of been taken away from me by artists and such. Uh, you, you know, so it's it's really a brilliant move from Denon um, to bring something like that to a product that is still growing. Mm. Yeah, it's almost they, like going got, back to the I, day of, of sharing mixtapes, you know? Oh, yes, it takes me... Well, okay, now, he's too young to remember mixtapes. Um, me? <laughs> oh, no, my friend. I know the connection between a cassette and a pencil eraser. I, I was going to say, I didn't say mixed CDs. I said mixed tapes. No, but, I mean, yes, it brings us back to, to being able to actually love and enjoy music again. Yeah, it's very interesting. Although I have to contend with you, I, as much as I may not enjoy Miss Swift's music, I think she's more punk rock than punk rock because she owns everything she wants and she does what she wants with it. And how much, <laughs> I mean, how much more punk knees. rock can you be, right? Mine go away. She uh, brought Apple to its knees, remember? She did indeed. She did indeed. Uh, something else that might bring us to our knees, Windows 10. In more ways than one, but in this case, from our friends at Geek.com, Windows 10 automatic updates are mandatory for home users. Now, there's a little note here that's saying business and IT firms can actually opt out of that. And we know the um, was it the big Merrill Lynch's and the Fortune 500s who are probably just getting into Windows 7 now <laughs> after getting off of XP because their their sort of rollout rate is years and years behind. But here's my quandary with this. And I'll start with uh, Adrian on this. This, though, means that the people who supply our interfaces that we're now using on the web and on mobile devices, because Windows 10 will roll out to some mobile devices, they may just suddenly stop working. Uh, this, I think, is a problem for us, or am I just over-paranoid? Um. Well, there's two ways I look at this. One, it's finally grandma will not be phoning me when her computer doesn't work because she's got a virus or, you know, something malicious has gotten in because, you know, she hasn't updated her computer in months. Um, this is a good thing for the average home user. Uh, Microsoft has had their butt kicked quite royally the last couple of years with the fact that they have been slow to respond um, to vulnerabilities in their software, and users overall have, have just been slow to respond to, you know, patching their products. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the sense of when you have a, you know, when we look at it in our world, in the commercial space, um, that's not good to have automatic updates because, you know, whenever you update something, oh, it's the new, it's the newest, greatest thing, let's update, and then you realize four or five things are broken that you actually need. Need uh, we talk about manufacturer's firmware, which is far less complex than this operating system. Yes. So, um, you know, the fact that, you know, an IT environment, you know, will be able to choose updates when they want them or when they need them or when they prove that they're, that, that it's actually good for them to use, that's great. Um, I think it's perfect for the standard average home user based on their level of, an, of, of adoption of technology. Well, now, it's, yeah, not work for, it's not going to work for everyone. I mean, you can't paint everybody with the same brush. Right. But overall, I think it's a good thing for Microsoft to do. Well, I want to bring Joe into this one because, Joe, my premise on it was how much of the service contract has to deal with the possible kaboom factor, as I like to call it, when Windows decided to update 
I can't tell you how many times I've lost editing when Windows oh. suddenly said, oh, I'm doing it now. What? Where? You, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I, there's, there's two ways to look at this, though. So, you know, I, not so much about uh, the, the – uh, my computer doesn't work because I caught a virus because I, I haven't updated it forever um, because – I've been playing with the Windows 10 beta, and, and that's not even going to be part of it because that's based on your McAfee or your AVG or whatever antivirus. The problem is going to come where, just like you, I'm in the middle or something, and all of a sudden I get the, we're going to restart because we're updating. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm in the middle of programming a system here. Why are you doing this to me? I'm going to lose four hours of work. And the worst part of this entire situation coming from a, a big IT infrastructure side is that little opt-out to opt-out of those updates is most likely only going to be for the corporations that use Microsoft volume licensing agreements. It's going to be part of an EA agreement. So if you're not a big corporation, you're stuck and you're going to get auto-updates and there's nothing you can do about it. And, and it's going to be bad because, you know, in the IT world, they there's not a great IT guy anywhere that doesn't go into his enterprise and totally shut off auto updates because they are the death. But now as a user, when I decide I'm going to update to 10, I'm stuck. I'm going to have to suffer. Or, you know, some of you guys who have done done programming and stuff before, you're going to show up somewhere, you're going to pop up at your laptop at 8 o'clock in the morning to show up and do a job and all of a sudden it says installing updates. Wait, we're almost there. Please, and, and, and you're just kind of stuck. Although it does give you the chance to do the old days of smoke them while you got them while it compiles. <laughs> I would have quit smoking a lot longer if compiling didn't take so long. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, Josh, from the uh, perspective of installing them, uh, is this a, a nightmare for you to say, now how do I schedule and do I keep track of Microsoft possibly announcing the updates so that I have a little bit of a head go or no? I, I'll, I don't know. I mean, as some of you know, I've, I have an eight-year background in IT where I did IT network administration for eight years, and some of that was with the military. Um, so I've got a pretty unique perspective on this. So you guys were on uh, Windows 3.11 last year. Yeah, something like that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, C colon backslash. Um, but uh, no, the um, – I don't know. I, I guess – the way I look at it, I was really kind of taken aback by Joe's comment where you said you don't know anybody who's worth their salt that doesn't disable automatic updates, but I know the exact opposite to be true. Uh, my wife is, an, is, a, is a network security engineer, and, uh, and that's what she does for a living, and, and her personal opinion on this subject matter, I actually asked her because I was coming on the show, I wanted to know what she thought about it, was that she thinks it's it's for the better because most people are going to put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off and they're never going to update their computer and it's going to make it more vulnerable and they're not going to have any fixes for their vulnerability and their patches. So I, I think uh, I agree with my wife in that in a corporate environment, you don't want that, but in a, in a home environment, I think it's for the better of the populace because it's kind of like inoculating your children when, you're, when they're young, giving them all um, – you know, immunizations. Uh, Grant, I'm probably stepping into some people's sensitive territory with that comment, <laughs> but, but, um, but you know, generally speaking, you know, this a herd immunity. That's what I'm getting at. It's yeah. it's herd immunity. Okay. Well, yeah, I'd like to add something to that, Josh, if I could. The you know, uh, your your wife is on the money because in a corporate environment, you don't you you do not do the updates based on when Microsoft decides to send you the updates. 
you do them based on group policies or using, mm. you know, you do them within your infrastructure, you do them planned, you do them at midnight, and you, you do those things. But, but when it comes to the consumer, yes, it, 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 but it should have that optional of let's do this at 4 a.m. when I'm asleep, not let's force this on me right now, right this second, because we definitely don't want grandma that you go to update and it says 256 service patch updates. And you're like, grandma, make me some potatoes because you're going to be there forever. But, you know, still having the option to be able to at least put it off for a couple of hours so that guys like me and you can do our work would be great. Yeah, it, well, here's my thing, and I'm going to use an example of the infamous Apple Nano. I don't know if any of you guys remember this, but everybody jumped on, on the bandwagon. We got controls, and we got interfaces to our, our systems. Every manufacturer had one, and then one day the colored Nanos came out in bright colors, and every single dock stopped working. And at first, working inside of a manufacturer's tech support at the time, we thought it was us. Oh, God, what did we do? What's wrong with the firmware? But all it was is they changed the pinouts. And went, oh, by the way, did we not inform you? It's a hardware change. Sorry. And the only reason you knew about it is because the guys on the community boards about Hummer and Chrysler and all the rest were starting to complain that their nanos don't work in their cars. I think That's that the happens, kind of thing I worry about. When that happens, hmm? George, I think you do I think you do this right here. <laughs> Hulk smashed. You know what we do? We need AV Hulk. We need the AV Hulk Twitter guy on. That's what we need. All right. Uh, one last one here, just to, to, to round it out. Uh, today, they're going to be showing, uh, probably as we're speaking here live on a, on a Friday, is uh, the Horizon will be sending out new photographs. And Sound and Contractor, Sound and Video Contractor did a nice little segment on what it takes to get the cameras and the information to us. Uh, and it's from an AV perspective of that, there was a very specific design going on here. Uh, and if you read uh, the interview, and it's down here somewhere yeah, with the guy that, that did the lead engineer for the camera, they had to do something about scalability where all the materials needed to be the same so that when it was in space getting farther and farther away, it would shrink the same. Uh, my curiosity, I guess, is, is in that realm of, do you guys see any installs that we have to be very specific about and that something like this would apply? <laughs> yes. 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 Tell me. Um, when you, you know, I've dealt a lot with uh, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, large corporations where they they want to standardize on their technology, and they're looking at it twofold. One is um, service for their internal staff, um, so that, you know it's it's the same box over and over and over, and if one fails, they can have one in backup, and it's easy to fix and replace. Or, um, or they look at it in training. Uh, it's it's a lot easier to train a group of people on the same system, and it doesn't matter what floor you're on or where you are in the building. It's the same darn thing, and you walk in, you know how to use it. It's not, well, you know, we need you know six different training sessions because we have six different types of systems, and 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 they all have different technology. Uh, so standardization is really good when you start looking at large systems uh, based on their complexity and based on the number of users you have in an environment. But uh, when you you know you look at uh, um, even in, in military applications or in in you know NASA, um, having all the widgets be as close to the same as possible when something breaks, 
it's really easy to reroute things or make other things work to do the job that's necessary. Um, if we all remember back to, you know, Apollo 13, um, they had different size CO2 scrubbers in the two modules. One right. was square, one was round, right? And and how do you make a square peg fit in a round hole? We got to modify it, like, and, and that's where a lot of the the changes in in technology and infrastructure started to go on in a lot of these systems is let's make things as close to similar as possible so if something breaks it's easy for us to fix. It's a nice little uh, wrap up. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, we're getting to the end of the show uh, but I wanted to give Joe a chance here. Mr. Whitaker, Cedia is coming up. Can you give us a little info on what's going on? Anything we can uh, tease well, out of you? You know, Cedia this year is is very unique in a, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's there's fresh faces involved. Um, there's obvious new technologies, uh, but it's going to be a great time because it's a little later in the year. It's 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 early October instead of September. It's in Dallas, so the weather is going to be amazing. Um, Cedia is going to have some of the best programs and best events. I've been involved with Cedia since its early days, and I could not compare any other uh, uh, Cedia show to be any anywhere near this. Um, I mean, the keynote speaker um, is Michael Rogers. Uh, you know, he's a practical futurist. Um, mm -hmm. It's 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 a little something different that Cedia is is doing, putting somebody of that caliber and talking about those kind of things out there. But it is important for technology right now and the way it's moving and you know we're seeing so much of you know a lot of you guys in, in commercial space and residential space so much of this stuff in the IT space is starting to blend together it's starting to mesh we're learning from each other we're innovating uh, uh, things that are affecting each other's patterns and it's all kind of coming together and and that's what's really important about uh, uh, Cedia this year are the people that you're going to see, the things that you're going to hear, they match that vision. I mean, it, it, it is the, you know, the future home. That, that is kind of a real, that's a deal there. And, I mean, we're lucky enough that we live in a lifetime that, I mean, we, we get to watch it happen firsthand. I, I, we, we, get, we get to see this cool stuff that's been influenced by great commercial integrators, great IT people, and it's all starting to come into our house and affect the way we live and make you know, life for us better at the end of the day. And that is some of the most powerful stuff. And, and this year, you're, you're going to see a lot of that. You're going to hear a lot about it. The, the attitude is going to be great. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. And there's some party and some fun to be had as well. Do we have an official hashtag? Um, Cedia15. That uh, is, uh, well, you, you could use two. You know, you got the hashtag Cedia15, which is, is pretty standardized, but also make sure to use hashtag AVTweeps. Um, I, you got to give those guys a lot of credit. Love those guys, um, and uh, they'll be out in full force uh, this year. You'll see a lot of interesting blogs from a lot of really recognizable people. Um, I do have to get a, get a shout out to to my boy uh, Richard Fergosa. Um, you know, very very good friend of mine, and and, and he'll be in, in full force as well. So I mean, it, it's going to be very exciting, and I think this is going to be. Um, one of those industry events that you're, you're going to hate to miss. Very cool. Now, now you got me excited. Now, and AV Nation will be there, so look for our page. We'll be covering a lot of stuff. 
just like we did last year, and uh, we'll let you in on a lot of that stuff. That, of course, was Joe Whitaker from J. Whitaker Designs and, of course, the CDO Board of Directors. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. And thank you guys for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. And, of course, Josh Joshua Stackhouse. Good to see you again, sir, and thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Tucker, for having me right. on. Where can they find more about you? Uh, pretty much just like you, everywhere on the Internet. I am at Stackhouse AV. So if you can find Stackhouse AV, you'll find me. All right, it's you at Stackhouse AV. I'm somewhere else, but there we go. <laughs> and, of course, the one and only Adrian Boyd, a man of international, man of leisure. Yes. Where can yes. we find out more about your goings-on or information about you? You know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter. You know, I am VAV. Uh, CAD guy on Twitter. Of course, you need to put underscores between every word because it's the longest Twitter handle in the known universe. But uh, <laughs> yes, I hear the Guinness Book of World Records is looking into it. Exactly. Right. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I'm all over the place, and and uh, maybe uh, soon I'll be uh, uh, getting my blog uh, updated and revitalized and start adding some good content. So cool. Well, thank you very much, sir. Yep. And Joe, I forgot to ask about Jay Whitaker Designs. Where can they find out more about that? Uh, Jay Whitaker Designs, based in St. Louis, Missouri. We are a custom integrator. Um, a best place to actually find me and get a hold of me is LinkedIn and Twitter. That is, is where where you'll be able to find me. Um, I actually just, uh, by the way, Mr. Adrian Boyd, you are the easiest man to find on LinkedIn, by the way. <laughs> just wanted to let you know that. Uh, so I had to throw something out there for you. Uh, appreciate you guys having me, um, and I, I'd love to be back sometime. What's the Twitter handle for uh, for you? For me? Yeah. Uh, Joe underscore tech underscore guru. There you go. All right. Yeah. All right. And I, of course, am George Tucker. You can follow me at Tucker Tuesday or on the AV Nation and Commercial Integrator Magazine. So thank you for listening. We look forward to speaking to all of you again very soon. This has been AV Week. 